see there three Bible passages. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He saved others. He cannot save himself, for he is... He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The temptations of Jesus was the battle of the Messiah to save the world. The setting of the temptation account in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel was the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan River where the Spirit descended upon him in chapter 3 verse 17 and the voice from heaven came down to him saying that he was the Son of God with whom God was well pleased. As we saw in the last study, this combination of these two statements, the Son of God with whom he is well pleased, is the combination of two Old Testament passages. The Son of God passage in Psalm 2, the royal psalm of the Messiah of the Christ. Remember the phrase, Son of God, equals Israel, it equals the King of Israel in particular, it equals, therefore, the Christ or the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word. That is the Son of God. The Son of God does not mean God the Son. The God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. That is the Eternal One who has always been God and is God. Now, we get confused because God the Son became the Son of God. But there are lots of sons of God, like Solomon, who was not God the Son. The phrase Son of God just means King of Israel, Messiah, Christ, ruler of the world. Whereas God the Son is the second person of the Trinity, who, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, became the Son of God. And so 2,000 years later, we've got them conflated, we've got them all mixed up together. And we just need to clear our minds on that one. The second passage though that God was quoting, is the servant song of Isaiah 42 to 53. And this suffering servant is the one in whom God delights. He says in Isaiah 42, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And there's a series of songs that leads to chapter 53 where he says, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all for this servant comes to suffer as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And now we read in chapter 4 verse 1 the spirit who descended on in the baptism, the spirit who anoints the Christ, the spirit who has been placed upon the servant of the Lord, the spirit leads Jesus, chapter 4 verse 1, into battle, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus didn't come into the world to avoid the devil, but to confront him and to destroy the works of the devil. 
The wilderness can be seen as the place of wild desert destructiveness, the haunt of death and uncontrollable animals. But within the Bible, the wilderness speaks much more of the exodus, of the formation of the nation Israel when they fled out of Egypt and crossed the wilderness into the promised land. And en route, they met with God at Mount Sinai and became a nation. It speaks of the new exodus, where the voice in the wilderness cries out, prepare the way of the Lord to meet his people, to bring them safely once more out of slavery into the promised land. It speaks of the trials and temptations of the people, for they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they were a rebellious people. Who were, It was part of God's judgment upon willful people, for they wouldn't listen to the voice of God but kept putting God to the test. And so God taught them by hunger to depend upon him, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the Spirit led Jesus, the Son of God, the Israel, the King of God, the servant of the Lord, into the wilderness once more to be tempted by the devil. Now we're not to think of evil as only a principle or force. The devil, Satan, is taught within the Bible as the personal rebel and leader of the rebellion against God. He is a liar and he is an accuser. Some people make too much of him, some people not enough of him. His power, and it's a real power, comes in telling lies and accusing God's people with these lies. He seeks to persuade us by his lies to rebel against God or to give up on ourselves as beyond redemption. He accuses us before God and he accuses God before us. Nor are we to think of the devil as more powerful or more important than he is, for that is to accept his lies. He's no real rival to God. In fact, God uses his rebellious ways to bring about God's purposes. For example, the cross. The devil's murderous ways brought about the plan of God for the salvation of mankind. So Jesus is led into the conflict with the devil in the wilderness by the Spirit. And Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a very common Old Testament symbolic number. Now, there are many mentions of 40 days and fasting as well. Moses fasted for 40 days on the mountain when the people gave in to the temptation and worshipped the golden calf. Elijah fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Nineveh was given by Jonah 40 days to repent. But I think the 40 days we are to think of is when the spies went into the promised land for 40 days to spy it out. They were too frightened by what they saw, too frightened to encourage the nation to cross over the river 
to conquer the Canaanites and settle in God's promised land. So God committed the whole nation to spend 40 years in the wilderness, one year for every day spent by the spies inside Canaan. You'll find it in Numbers 14.34 if you would look it up. The first aspect of the temptation of Jesus was that of bread in the wilderness. Notice how Matthew chapter 4 verse 2 says the overwhelmingly obvious. He was then hungry. Well, after 40 days, he was more than hungry. He was starving. I mean, why say he was hungry? That is the most obvious thing to ever say. Well, it's because we're supposed to remember how God made the nation, God's son, how God made the nation hungry in the wilderness back in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 I read a few moments ago. How God provided the manna in the wilderness and God taught his son Israel to depend upon him and how God disciplined his son Israel. Now the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God. It's not the conditional question, let's see if you are or are not the son of God, but more, since you are the son of God. I mean, if you're the son of God, this is what you should do, or that is what you should do. The heavenly voices just identified Jesus as the son of God. He's the Messiah, he's the new king of Israel, he's the new Israel. And as God called the son out of Egypt and saw Israel tempted in the wilderness, so now the son is called out into the wilderness to be tempted. But whereas the nation failed in the temptation, the son of God, obediently going to follow God's commission to be the suffering servant. So now the devil gives an alternative to being the servant, an alternative to suffering. Why don't you turn the stones into bread? Well, Jesus could do that. He had the power and the ability to turn stones to bread. But Jesus didn't do miracles to demonstrate his power or to satisfy his own, his own wants or to satisfy the devil's suggestions. He was hungry and he was a way to satisfy his own needs. But it's not what he was sent into the world to do. He was to suffer for others, not to satisfy himself. He could do it for others. He would do it for others. He fed 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. In fact, when he did it, they saw him as the king, as the Messiah, and wanted to make him king. For surely providing bread and games is what every king and politician has been trying to do ever since the days of the ancient world. If you can provide the multitudes, then you will win approval and popularity. And this is the way to be the Messiah. This is the way to be the popular Messiah. But it was not God's way. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 to answer the tempter. For the word of God said to the hungry son of God, Israel, the word of God says to the hungry that God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you didn't know nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God tested the people of Israel to have them trust him, to earn to rely upon him and to depend him. In the temptation of the devil was the desire to see him fail. In the testing of God was the desire to see him succeed. 
Jesus was not going to follow the devil's way to be the son of God. He was going to follow God's way to be the son of God. He was going to trust every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. He would live by God's word, not die by the devil's lie. And so the devil takes him to the top of the temple to be caught in the fall. Again, you'll notice that the temptation commences in verse 6. If you are the son of God. For here was another way to be the son of God, another way to be the Messiah. If you will not satisfy your stomach when you're hungry, if you will not feed the world with bread and games, then why not show yourself to be the Son of God with a miracle of such proportion that nobody could doubt you? You're the Son of God? Put God to the work for you. You're the Son of God? Use your special status to force God to save you. You're the Son of God? So save yourself. Throw yourself down from the top of the temple into the Kidron Valley below. It was a a death-defying leap it would take of hundreds and hundreds of feet, 450 feet from the top of the temple all the way down to the bottom of the valley. God, though, you're the Messiah. He'll protect you. He'll snatch you up. He'll catch you. The angels will catch you because you're the Son of God. Why? Even the scriptures say in Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you'll strike your foot against the stone. You see it there in the, 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 uh, the, the, the statements from scriptures that the devil is quoting in verse 6. For here is the Bible in the mouth of the devil. It's a great warning to us that just quoting the Bible doesn't make something biblical. It's a great warning to us that just because somebody is quoting the Bible doesn't make them one of God's people. It's a great warning that quoting the Bible can be the sheep's clothing that the ravenous wolf is coming in. Leaving aside whether the devil is quoting the Bible accurately or distorting its message completely, it's one thing to be told that God will protect his Holy One. It's another one for the Holy One to act irresponsibly and call upon God to fulfill this promise. It's another thing, again, to test out the promise by acting dangerously. The psalm is not encouraging us to put God to the test. It's reassuring us of God's provision and protection. Jesus sees the error of putting God to the test, and so he again quotes Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Verse 7 here in Matthew. It's Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 8 that deal with the temptations of Israel in the wilderness. When that was the Son of God being tempted. And it's that passage, Deuteronomy 6 to 8, that Jesus keeps quoting here and finding answers to temptation. Putting God to the test was indeed the sinful failure of the people of Israel when they were tempted in the wilderness. They didn't put God to the... Sorry, they did put God to the test at Massa when they complained about the lack of water to drink in the wilderness. It was putting God to the test that led them to be banished into the death in the wilderness. As it says in Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. Now Jesus 
withstands the temptation that Israel succumbed to. He is the Son of God, whom God will protect. And so, he has no reason to put God to the test. So the devil moves on, and moves on to the top of the mountain with the final offer. Worship me. Again, it's a temptation based on if you are the Son of God, although it doesn't use the clause this time. It's the assumption of the challenge because what is being offered is exactly what the Son of God was going to have, all the nations of the world falling down to him. And so he offers all the kingdoms of the world, like in Psalm 2. The very thing that God himself had offered, the devil now offers. This is not a subtle temptation. This is the basic and obvious temptation that lies behind all the others. It's to replace God with the devil. God says he will give you these kingdoms, but it's I, the devil, not God who owns all the kingdoms of the earth. It's I, the devil, not God, who can give them to you. It's I, the devil, not God, whom you must fall down and worship. Again, Jesus turns to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8 and says, you shall, over the page there, where he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The command of God is as simple and straightforward as the temptation was crude and unsophisticated. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In the end, all temptations are invitations to turn aside from giving all to God. He and he alone should have all our loyalty his way and his way alone should be our way of life. Whatever form the devil comes to us, he must be resisted and rejected as firmly and as decisively as Jesus did. So the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. His needs were always in God's sight and God's messengers could always provide for him. Indeed, Psalm 91 is true. God would command his angels concerning his son. But this was not the end of the temptations of Jesus. Luke's gospel puts it this way. It says, the devil left Jesus until the opportune time. But for the moment, the devil left and defeated. And God's angels cared for the son who had withstood such pressure. Here then, Matthew presents for us the temptations of Jesus. In one sense, Jesus is human. It's the temptations of humans and humanity everywhere. It's the reversal of Adam, the serpent's lies that deceived Eve and misled Adam. But it had no effect on Jesus. He saw the lies for what they were. Adam was the son of God. Adam was tempted. Adam failed. And so he shows us what we should do when we're confronted by the evil one. But more importantly, he re-engages the enemy on the behalf of humanity. 
He's not saying, well, Adam did it this way and it didn't work, so I will show you how to do it that way and it will work. No, no, Jesus is the last Adam, or the second Adam, if you want to call him that, coming to fight on our behalf. He is taking the place of Adam to do the battle that Adam failed. And more than the temptation of humanity, this is the temptation of Israel. For Israel was the prodigal son of God who wasted the salvation that was offered to it, who turned away from the God who was saving it, who on the wedding night of the covenant committed adultery with the golden calf, even as the wedding register was being signed up at the mountain with Moses. And now the one true Israelite, the one son of God is back on the scene of Israel's temptations and overcoming the evil one as he resolutely stays faithful to his heavenly father. For this is the temptation, not just of Adam and not just of Israel, but of the Christ of Israel. Here is the Son of God to whom is promised the nations as his inheritance, being challenged to come to his kingdom, not by depending upon his heavenly Father, not by trusting his heavenly Father, not by obedience to his heavenly Father, but by relying upon worldly methods, putting God to the test, feeding himself, Worshipping Satan, here is the Christ, the Son of God, being offered the kingdom of God by the enemy of God. But all this was the challenge, really, to the servant Messiah. For Jesus knew his scriptures. He knew what the servant was going to have to endure. He knew that he was to suffer and to be rejected. He knew that the Lord would lay upon him the iniquity of us, you and me and all. He knew that he was to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins. So here were the alternative ways put to the Christ, but they're all the alternatives to being a suffering servant. He could be the Christ who turns stone to bread. He could be the Christ who puts God to the test with great miracles. He could be the Christ who worships the devil or he could be the Christ who was crucified on Golgotha. And this temptation was not ended but continued throughout his ministry. For when he made a few fish and loaves into bread for 5,000, they sought him out to make him their king. I mean, anybody who can feed the multitude will win the election. And there in that crowd was the voice of Satan. Why not turn stones to bread? And when he met the Pharisees, or when he met Herod, there was the demand to see miracles. Even his own brothers said, no one will believe you if you don't do the miracles. Go up to Jerusalem and show yourself. And these demands for miracles, there was the voice of the devil. Throw yourself down from the top of the temple and be caught up by the angels. And when he told Peter that he was the suffering servant, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It shall not happen to you. You are the Christ. And Jesus rebuked Peter for he recognized again the voice of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're not on the side of God, but of man. And when he was in the garden and Peter produced the sword, cut off the servant's ear, Jesus knew that there were legions of angels who could protect him at that moment, but he had to do his father's will. 
He had to go to the cross. Fighting was not the way. Not my will, but your will be done. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think I could appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, the temptations never left him. Even when he was on the cross, right at the end, hanging there, dying, they called out, he saved others. He cannot save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Yes, he was the son of God. But the way to be the son of God was not to come down off the cross. The way to be the son of God was to stay up there on the cross. The epistle to the Hebrews calls Jesus a merciful and high priest because he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, come across and read it with me, Hebrews chapter 4, it's page 127, 1207, 1207, Hebrews chapter 4, and pick it up in verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14, Right down the bottom of the page, I'm sorry, 1,205. It is right down the bottom of that page. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He can sympathise with us for he knows us and he knows how hard temptation is, how often it comes to us. And he can help us because he passed through the heavens. He did not sin and he approached into the heavens as the one who was the perfect sacrifice for sins so that we can now approach him in prayer, the powerful one who sits upon God's right hand, the sympathetic one who knows how hard it is and we can find mercy and grace in time of need. My friends, the fact that he didn't sin only shows more how much he understands temptation. Some years ago I was watching the Olympics. The marathon ran just past our house, really, down Nanzac Parade, Kensington, ran past twice. And we watched the people struggling on the way down and on the way back we saw a lot of them sitting in the bus. They had given up before they'd reached the end of the marathon because and they'll never know how hard the marathon was going to be. If you give up halfway along, you don't know how bad it is. It's the person who sees it to the very end who knows how powerful the temptation to give up is. When I give in to sin on the first temptation, I don't know how bad temptation can be, but the Lord Jesus went all the way to the cross without sin. Tempted all the way to the cross and yet without sin. He understands the power of the devil's lies to tempt us, to accuse us, to turn us aside 
from obeying our Heavenly Father. But he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he died our sin and conquered our death and is now seated at the right hand of God in all power and authority and can help us in our times of trouble. Sympathetic, mighty high priest, the suffering servant who is the king. And so, faithful to God unto death, we now have access to the heavenly power of God Because he withstood temptation and bore the sin of the world as the servant of the Lord. For as the Old Testament scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And as the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice for our sin. We thank you that you laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that we may be forgiven and pardoned, stand before you just and right. We thank and praise you, Father, for this. And we thank you that your son withstood temptation, that your son was faithful as we are so faithless, that he was not like Israel, nor like all the kings of Israel, but that he was the true Israelite and the true king who could come and win the kingdom your way, not our way, not Satan's way, but your way, by being the suffering servant for us. We thank you, Father, and we thank you that we now have our high priest who understands us, who sympathizes with our weakness and our frailty, who knows what temptation is all about, but who sits with you in all power and glory to assist us in our struggles. And so we thank you and praise you for our Lord and Saviour in whom we call you Father.